here this morning. It's always a joy to come back to Hong Kong. And every time when I leave Hong Kong, I will gain some weight because I just couldn't control myself when I was staying here. There's so much good food here. And as an Asian, of course, I love food. Thank you for having me again. And just briefly introduce myself. Uh, my name is Luna. I, I was born in China. I grew up there. Uh, and I did my undergraduate study in Beijing. I worked in Beijing for a few years. And then I went to Oxford for postgraduate studies in sociology uh, and where I found Jesus Christ. So I will introduce more details uh, while I'm speaking in the next half an hour, and I hope that you will find some aspects helpful, or at least be encouraged that how powerful this Jesus is to transform a person's life. So today, the topic I'm speaking on is truth. Truth is a really, really big topic. It's a very broad concept. Let me start off from telling a story. Imagine that we're all in the dark tunnel very dark. There are three people walking together in the dark tunnel. One is an optimist, and the second person a pessimist, and the third person is a realist. The pessimist says, this is so dark. We will never go to the end. I can't bear this anymore. The optimist says, well, you see, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We're nearly the end. And the realist says, well, just remind you guys, there is a light, but that's a light from a train that's coming toward us. <laughs> just imagine that. What if the optimist responds in this way? Well, this is true for you, not necessarily true for me. I can understand whatever way that I want to. What if the pessimist responds in this way, saying that how arrogant you are to even suggest what you think is true for everybody. What do you think will happen? I bet that there will be a tragedy. Because not being able to recognize that a train is coming toward us is not going to change the existence of the train or whether the train is coming or not. But what it will change is our destiny. This is exactly the culture that we are in now. The postmodernist view is that there's no overarching reality. There's no matter narrative that can describe or explain everything. Everything is based on context, based on individuality. Everything is up for interpretation. Two popular sayings. First, truth is relative. It's true for you, not true for me. Second, truth is subjective. It depends on me to understand from my own perspective, from my cultural background. There's no objective, absolute truth beyond subjectivity. But there's a problem. I found that the problem about this theory is it can't be lived out. Even the most strongest version of postmodernists cannot simply live according to what they claim they believe in their actual life. What do I mean by that? A very, very tiny example. 
Yesterday, I had a headache. I went to pharmacist. I wanted to buy some painkillers, so I bought a box of medicine, the painkillers. If I were a true postmodernist, when I read the instructions on the back of the box, I would be so angry. Why? Because there are some exclusive claims on the back of the box. It says that every four to six hours, eat one to two tablets. Do not take more than eight tablets within 24 hours. Do not exceed the stated dose. If I were a postmodernist, I would think, whoever wrote this, it is true for you, not necessarily true for me. Or I could think that once the texts are out there, the author's intention not important anymore. It's up to me to interpret in the way that I want to, according to my background. So the logical conclusion will be, as a postmodernist, I am free to eat however many tablets I think would suit me. Do you think any people, any postmodernism, will actually do that? I bet not. They will follow the doctor's instructions. I have to say that the postmodernist view is true in some way. The context is important. The individuality is important, and we can already grasp a glimpse from the box already. If we keep reading the instruction, we will see that okay, for children between six to eleven years old, they can only take half of those. For children under six years old, it's even not rec recommended. The parents need to consult the doctors. But does it mean that behind all of this, there's no objective guiding principle? Quite the opposite. The reason we know. How to apply truth in different contexts, in different people groups? It's not because of without objectivity. It's based on our objective understanding of how this particular medicine works, and how the adult's body and children's body work differently. Subjectivity cannot deny or substitute objectivity. It is based on objectivity. The objective truth is not just important in every detailed aspect of our life. It is important for us to understand life as a whole. What is the truth about life? Is there an objective answer to the life big questions? Where we are from, why we are here, what shall we do, where we are going—is there an answer to this? Sometimes, when I was talking to my friends, I often get this response: "Come on, I'm just too busy to think about these vague, big questions. I need to work." But the reality is, whether we realize or not. Every one of us have our answers to these big questions, and we are living our life according to our our answers. Where you live, what kind of jobs you do, whom to marry, children's education, every single detailed decision—that's our answers to these big questions—are undergirding every aspect of our life. 
to deny the importance of these big questions actually is to think that you are making every effort to run without even knowing whether we are running in the right direction. There was a true story I read from the news a few years ago, and I still remember it vividly. It's a very interesting story. On April 28th in 2013, a few years ago, in North England, there was a marathon. About 5,000 people participated in that marathon. Only one person won the race. Well, it's not a surprise that only one people can win in a race, but that person called Jake Harrison, he won because he was the only person who completed the whole course. Why was that? Because all the other nearly 5,000 people followed the wrong lead of the second-placed runner. And at a particular confusing turning, they turned into the wrong direction. They went off the official route. All the 5,000 people. So only one person completed it, and he was a winner. It wouldn't be funny if you were one of them. It's a funny story, it's a funny news to, to read, but the question for us is this. Do we know that our life is on the right track? Just because everyone around us is running in the same direction, does it make it right? Is there a possibility that we are only following somebody else's mistake? As I mentioned, I was born in China. I grew up there. I have to say that throughout my whole childhood when I was growing up, I had no time to think about God. Because all my focus was on studying, getting good marks, going to the good school, making my parents proud. I believe that everyone in this room know what I'm talking about. It kind of reached its climax when I got the first place in my city in the college entrance exam, and I went to Peking University to study law as a result. But when I went to the university, it should be a really happy time. That's the best university in China. But I had my first identity crisis there. When I was surrounded by all the good students, the best students from all around China, I started panicking. I started thinking that if I can't be the best student anymore, what shall I do? Like my friend told me that don't mention that you're the first place from your city here, okay? Because when you open the door, all the people are first place from somewhere, from China. If I can't be the best, what shall I do? I didn't realize that deep in my heart, I believe that my identity was connected to my performance. That's how I see who I am. And I was not sure even how long I could maintain that performance for. And I was so insecure in my heart because I was desperate for other people's approval. After graduation, I started working for a few years in a real estate developer in Beijing, I became more confused. I was only 20 years old at that time, but I felt life in the next 50 years has already been written for me already. Life is like a ladder. 
I have to climb and climb and climb. Work hard, get better salary, get promotion, maybe change a job, get a better position, and get married, have children, send my children to the good school, send my children to a good high school, and worry about their university. Life is pretty much the same story, isn't it? And when I look around, I found that this ladder is in front of most of us. We are climbing the same thing. But the question is, who puts the ladder there? Who put it there? And who decides that which subjects, which jobs, are better than others? Who says that by what age that I should get married? Who says that by what time that you should buy a house and you have to buy one? Is this the only version of life? Is life just about this? I was so worried that I was running and running and running, but to find that I was running the wrong direction. So, with all these questions, I decided to take a gap from working. And I went to Oxford University for a postgraduate study in sociology, hoping that I could take some time to think really hard who I am and how I'm going to live my life. And that year, out of some random invitation, I was invited to a British family for Christmas lunch. There, I met a lady called Wendy. Wendy was already 76 years old. She told me that she used to live in Thailand for 20 years. She's British. She lived there from 26 years old to 40 years, 46 years old as a Christian missionary. And that was part of the reason that she never got married. When I listened to her story, I was surprised, because it's such a different story compared to the familiar narrative that I used to hear. And I was surprised by this Christian God that how powerful He is to actually change Wendy's life path and make Wendy live for Him, sacrifice for Him, and yet when she talked about Him, she has so much joy. Who is this Christian God? During the conversation, Wendy asked me, "Luna, do you know what is Christmas?" I said, "Yeah, kind of. You know, we Chinese celebrate Christmas as well. We buy each other presents. We have good meals together. Yeah, I love Christmas." Wendy told me very briefly about who Jesus is and why Christians celebrate Christmas because of Jesus. And then she said to me, "Do you want to come to church with me to find out more about Jesus?" I looked at her. You know, as an Asian girl. <laughs> It's so difficult to say no to an old lady with gray hair. <laughs> so I said, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> so that's how I started going to church. I still remember that the first few Sundays, every time Wendy was waiting for me outside the church door. It was January. It was really cold in England. Every time I made that turn to the church, and I saw Wendy standing out there in the cold wind, the gray hair with scarf, with a big smile, waving to me, and I thought to myself, "Oh dear, I have to come back from now on." 
So I started going to church every Sunday with Wendy. And from there, I started this journey seeking for truth. I want to share this journey with you today, and I hope that you will find some aspects helpful. I have to say that the first few months, I was very suspicious. I didn't make any progress because I was so worried of being brainwashed. I thought I came out of China. I was got brainwashed in Oxford. That was not a good idea. So I actually invited three non-Christian Chinese friends to come with me to church, and I said, "Let's watch each other, okay? In case that one of us is getting mad." <laughs> and a turning point happened when we read the passage together from the Bible. So we all joined the same Bible study group. They actually, the church started a seekers group, especially for us. One day. We read the passage together. It's about、um, the story between Jesus and his disciple Thomas. Thomas, one of the disciples, he didn't believe that Jesus resurrected. He said, "Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and I put my fingers where the nails were, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe." After that, Jesus appeared to Thomas. He gave Thomas the evidence that he asked for. Thomas recognized Jesus and said, "My Lord and my God." After this passage, the group leader, the Bible study teacher, turned to us, saying, "What stops you from becoming a Christian?" And we took turns to answer. The person, the non-Christian Chinese friend next to me, he was saying, "It's obvious. I'm like Thomas." You know, Jesus didn't appear to me. If he gives me evidence that, like he gives Thomas, of course I will believe. Until that moment, I thought that was my problem. But while my friend was articulating that, I thought to myself, really? Imagine that if Jesus really appeared to me at that moment and told me that he was Jesus, would I believe? Probably not. I will find all kinds of alternative explanations to explain that event. I will say it's an illusion, it's a dream. I was getting mad, or whatever. I will find an explanation to explain that. Why? Because my worldview system at that time just didn't allow God to exist at all. I decided that Jesus couldn't. Possibly exist on the earth before I even started looking at the evidence. If Jesus stands in front of me with that kind of high-level evidence, and I will still not believe, then the problem probably is not about the evidence; it's about me. That was the first turning point in my journey of seeking the truth. And after that, my heart started opening up a bit more, and God started shining light inside. I started reading the Bible, really wanted to see that what it says as it is, and I really wanted to understand Christianity, what is really about. But still, 
I was very, 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 very far from making a commitment. There are many barriers on the way seeking the truth. And I believe that the barriers will be different for every one of us. But there are a few things I want to share with you because I think it's particularly related to our Eastern Asia culture. When I look back, and I found that I had a very, very pragmatic, embraceive, collective view of truth. The whole East Asia is very much influenced by Confucianism and Taoism. Probably now we don't talk about it much more in our popular culture. But if we dig into history, actually through history, it has shaped our culture and shaped us in some way that we think how we think right now. I'll explain what I mean by that. The first aspect, the pragmatic approach of reality. In East Asian culture, the nearest concept of truth is Tao or Tao, whatever you pronounce it. It's the same word. I would just call it Tao, um, just for simplicity. Tao. Confucius said, if I hear the Tao in the morning, I may die in the evening without regret. And he also said, Junzi, which means a gentleman, a man with, with virtue, Junzi set his mind on Tao and take Tao rather than food as his object. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds similar to truth. But there are significant differences between these two concepts. If we know how to write Tao as Chinese character, we'll see that it's a combination of two parts. A part is human head, and another part is a human steps. It indicates that the original meaning of Tao is connected to the human practices and human exercise. Confucius also said, man can enlarge Tao, but Tao cannot enlarge man. And even Zhuangzi, who really liked to deify this Tao, he also said, Tao comes into being because of people's walking and things coming to being because of people's naming. So we can see that rather than as an objective reality out there for us to discover, to explore, actually this doll in the East Asian philosophy is a concept that is related to human practice, is constructed by human, explored by human, and used by human. Its value is in its usefulness. And the second aspect is embraceive view of reality. It's especially nurtured by Taoist law of contradiction and the Confucius, the, the doctrine of the mean. I'll explain what I mean by that. There's a very popular story. I'm sure you know that an old man and a horse. An old man lost his horse, and the neighbors knew that the horse was his main income source, so they came to comfort him. I'm so sorry that you lost his horse. The old man says, who knows what's good or bad? And after a few days, the horse came back and brought back another wild horse. And the neighbor's herd came to congratulate him. Congratulations. And he said, who knows what's good or bad? 
After a few days, his son was riding that wild horse and fell off the horse and broke his leg. Neighbors came again. Poor neighbors. Neighbors came again. Say, I'm so sorry. He said, Who knows what's good or bad? And after a few months, the war broke out, and all the able-bodied men were called by the king to fight in the war. And because his son broke his leg, so he was spared from the war. The story can go on and on and on as long as your patience permits. But the idea is, it expresses a fundamental principle in the Taoist worldview of reality: is the world is full of contradictions and is constantly changing. There's no certainty. Lao Tzu in Tao Te Ching says this: For misery, happiness is leaning against it. For happiness, misery is hiding in it. Who knows whether it is misery or happiness? There is no certainty. The righteous suddenly becomes the vicious. The good suddenly becomes the bad. Everything is constantly changing. What you think is right on the appearance may not be right in reality. The most popular concept of Taoism is yin yang. We are all familiar with that. Yin yang, yin is a passive, feminine,、uh, dark side, and yang is a light side,、uh, the muscular, the bright side, active side. So they alternate with each other in constant. So actually, it expresses a view of reality as two opposing but interpenetrating forces. They complete each other. They make each other comprehensible, and they make conditions for each other to alter into one another. It's constantly changing. While the Greek philosophers developed the law of non-contradiction, two opposing propositions cannot be true at the same time. A and non-A cannot be true at the same time. For Taoists, it's quite the opposite. It's a law of contradiction. The two opposing statements can happily exist together in a harmony, in an active whole, and constantly changing into each other. Well, it's quite confusing, you might say. Confucius is easier to understand. <laughs> He ha- also has an impressive worldview, but from a slightly different perspective. He thinks that nothing stands in isolation; everything is connected to a multitude of other things in a meaningful whole. It's embedded in the in the whole. So, if we take any object or any person out from that whole and apply the abstract understanding of that person or ab- object, what will happen? That will lead us to misleading and extreme conclusions. So we need to find the middle way to avoid extreme conclusions. If two opposing contradiction, contradictory statements appear, then we have to find a middle way. A is right. B is not wrong either. The contradiction is only superficial. So as we can see, Confucianism, Taoism, both approve an embracing worldview. When the contradictory statements appear, we don't have to choose between them. We can happily embrace them all, learn from them, make use of them. 
And the third approach of understanding reality is a collective one, a harmonious one. Harmony is a watchword for Eastern Asian culture, right? As I just mentioned, Confucius thinks that nothing, no one stands in isolation. Everything is connected. We want to understand one single thing, we have to understand the whole. It's like if you want to understand the music note, you have to understand the whole melody. While Greek philosophers developed the self concept, that self maintains its unique identity across the social context. For East Asian philosophers, there's no self as a concept on its own. There's a Confucian scholar called Henry Rosemont. He described it really beautifully. He said, for the early Confucians, there can be no me in isolation to be considered abstractly. I am the totality of rose I live in relation to specific others. Taken collectively, they weave for each of us a unique pattern of personal identity such that if some of my roles change, the others will of necessity change also, literally making me a different person. I am the totality of the roles. My identity is connected with all the social relations around me. Every one person starts from being a member of a collective, starting from being a member of a family. That's why if you ask East Asian, why do you study this subject or take this particular job, they probably start from telling you about their um, family's expectations or parents' preferences. So for East Asian, to feel happy to a large extent is tied to the fact that we're, we're meeting the expectations of the group which we belong to. You might ask, how do all of this relate to your searching for Christianity? Well, at that point, I felt that I had a very, very pragmatic approach of Christianity. To me, Christianity, whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. It's not the most important thing. The most important thing is I can learn something from it. Jesus is like a good teacher. It's like Confucius. They teach us great lessons. Great, it's like a fable story out there. Yes, I can draw lessons from. And I had a very embracing view of reality. Christianity might be true. Buddhism might be true as well. And other things might be true at the same time. They all teach us love and goodness, right? I also had a very collective view of reality. Back in my mind, I, the question I was always thinking was how are my parents going to respond to this? How are my friends going to respond to this? Will my parents upset if I become a Christian? Will my friends think I'm going mad? But a turning point happened in a conversation I had with Wendy. I was telling Wendy this. So Wendy, you know, we started going to church for a while. We still think that we have so many questions, you know. We don't think that we can become Christians before we return to China. We just want to tell you this. Because I was worried when Wendy had kind of expectation of me doing something. 
And Wendy said, wait, wait, wait. Who are we? I said, you know, we, we are, you know, just a few friends. Like, we started going to church together, and we joined the same Bible study group, and we have been going to church, blah, 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 this. And Wendy said, well, God has different stories with, with each person. It might be the time that you jump out of that we and think, what do you think Jesus is? Who do I think Jesus is? When Wendy asked me that question, that reminds me of a passage I read in the Bible. It's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what are you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Who do I say Jesus is? I want to say to Jesus, You're a good teacher. You're a great teacher. I learned lots of things from you. Thank you. But it seems that Jesus didn't leave me that option. Jesus made an extreme, absolute claim about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. C.S. Lewis is one of my, I think, great teachers. That he, uh, he's a great apologist. He also wrote beautiful novels, the Chronicle of Narnia as well. He explained this really well. He said, when Jesus or any, any person makes that claim, there are only three choices. The first one, he was mad. He didn't know what he was talking about. Second choice, he was evil, probably the most evil person. He was a liar. He knew what he was talking about. He intentionally made that lie. Or the third choice, he knew what he was talking about and that is true. That he is who he claims himself to be. There's no other options. You can't say, He's just a teacher. He made that claim. If it is true, it's true. If it is wrong, then either he's mad or he's a liar. It's an extreme claim. If what Jesus says is true, if he is truly the one he claimed himself to be, if he is God, that if we want to understand the reality, the ultimate reality of life, if we understand who we are and why we live here, we have to go back to him. We have to go back to the designer of us, the maker of the universe, to understand who we are. So truth, this question, probably doesn't start from how to. Even not what is truth, but who is God? Who is this Jesus? After I was determined to, to, 
to make clear that whether Jesus said about himself is true. I started the next part of the journey. It's truly to examine Jesus' claim, to examine the truth. And I was surprised, actually, by the amount of evidence that actually is possible, is available there for me to see. I started going to every possible event in the church that international students could actually possibly go to. I grabbed all kinds of Christian friends and asked them, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What about what is saying? And what about evolution? What about Buddhism? What about Confucianism? What about how can we trust the Bible, you know, if they were written by human beings? How can we trust the church if some Christians are still doing bad things? I asked so many, so many questions that I appreciate my Christian friends patiently answering me hundreds of hundreds of questions. They did not only answer me in their words and their answers, but they actually showed me Christ in their life and in their interactions with me and the love that they showed to me. One book I found it extremely helpful at that time was called The Case for Christ, written by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel had a law background, similar background, academically, with me, and he became a journalist. His wife became a Christian. He was absolutely an atheist. He didn't believe God at all. Because his wife became a Christian, he wanted to prove that his wife was wrong. So he started an investigation. Now I'm married, I can't understand how strong that motivation can be. <laughs> so he started an investigation of this Christian faith. And at the end of the investigation, he became a Christian himself. And he wrote this book, The Case for Christ. He invested all the historical evidence. And I was amazed to see that actually the Bible is a history book. And actually, Jesus really existed in human history as a human being on the earth. He lived, he died, and after three days, he came back to life. The tomb was found empty. Many people testified to that. Resurrection happened in history means that it is a historical event. We can seek evidence for that. That brought me so much confidence and encouragement and I gradually realized that when my Christian friends tell me that they have faith in Jesus it's not a faith without evidence and it's not a faith against evidence as a lot of popular atheists suggest these days it's a faith in line with evidence but beyond evidence it is a it is not checking out your brain at the door, you know, leave your brain and, and leap off into the unknown darkness. Rather the opposite. It's an intelligent confidence that you put into someone who is worthy of our trust. Who is reliable and matches reality. While my mind was gradually convinced by the evidence that I saw... But more than that, my heart was really struck by the beauty of the Christian message that Jesus brought me. One day, I came across a passage. It's a familiar passage to you, probably. It's from Paul's letter to the Church of Philippians, chapter 2, um, verse 5 to 11. 
I will just read verse 5 to 8 for you this morning. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I was struck by the image I saw from the passage. Did you notice that when we are all striving to climb up higher and higher and achieve more and more, Jesus is coming down that ladder? He starts up really high. In verse 6, he said, Being very nature God, which declares the full deity of Jesus, he is God, and he's with God. And he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he willingly left the splendor and glory of heaven. He came down to earth and became one of us, dwelt among us. That's already humiliation for God enough, right? But he didn't stop there. He kept coming down. He was not born in the king's palace where he was born. He was born in a manger among the animals. He became the servant of the world that he made for our sake. And he kept coming down. He was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was rejected, humiliated, insulted by the human beings that he made. And he died on the cross. It was not any kind of death. It was the most humiliating death known to the Roman world. And it was not just a physical pain that brought him suffering. Neither was the humiliation that his enemies watched him die. No, it was the agony that from when God the Father turned his back on Jesus. Jesus paid the price for us on that cross. And he reached the bottom of the ladder. He couldn't go any lower. He has gone from the highest of height to the lowest low. I was struck by that image, by that Jesus. While all of us are striving to achieve more and more, to climb higher and higher, this Jesus has come down the ladder to take the ladder away from our life. There's no ladder in our Christian life. There's no way, absolutely no way that can, we can work hard to reach God. There is an unbridgeable gap between sinful human beings and the holy God. And Jesus has come to bridge that gap for us. When we are enslaved by our ambitions, expectations of others, lies of the culture, Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. All those who are burdened 
and who are heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest. When we want to achieve more and more to satisfy the unsatisfiable void in our heart, Jesus says, any person who drinks this water from this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. For the water I give them will become a living water welling up to eternal life. I have to say that when I tried to make sense of my life from my own perspective, I didn't get very far. But when I tried to put my story in a, in a much, much bigger story, in God's narrative, I finally found myself, found who I am and why I live here. I found my identity, which is rooted in Christ, which doesn't change according to the circumstances. I found my worth, which is rooted in God's love. It doesn't depend on my performance or how other people look at me. I found the meaning of my life, which is not using all the resources possible to satisfy my own need, but is self-serving to give out whatever I have as what Christ did on the cross. Everything, every detail in my life suddenly has a deeper meaning and a higher purpose. I wouldn't say that I found truth, but I encountered this Jesus, and I know Jesus now. And when this Jesus stands in front of us, what can we say? We can only call his name like what Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Shall we pray together to this Lord? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you. We praise you for what you have done for us on the cross. It's impossible for us human beings with our limited perspectives to understand how much that you have suffered, how much you have loved us. But we pray that you will send the Spirit to work inside us to help us to respond in the right way to you, to give you worship, to give you love. We pray for all our friends who are still searching for truth, who don't know you yet. We pray that you will open their eyes. We pray that they will come to see how beautiful you are, how faithful you are, how amazing, how glorious you are. We give you thanks this morning. In your powerful name we pray. Amen.